Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sassy Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Lucy Pinto. I'm excited to share with you my stories of everyday resilience and allow others to share theirs. My goal is to help people heal and find inner peace through our shared stories. This episode may include profanity or discuss topics that may be triggering for some. Hi, everyone. I am Lucy Pinto, your host of the Sassy Warrior podcast, and I am excited today to have a conversation with Ariel Diamond, the founder of My Sober Compass. So hello, Ariel. Thank you for being here with me today. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So I would love it if you would tell me a little bit about My Sober Compass and your story. Yes, I would love to share that with you. So hi, guys. I started My Sober Compass three years ago. And what it is, it's a sober coaching company. The reason why I got into this space is because I myself struggled with alcohol for 10 years. From the moment that I had my first drink at 18 till I became 28 years old, alcohol ran my life. It ruled my life. And I honestly had no idea that over the years I was turning into a complete alcoholic who was relying on alcohol to cope with everyday life. The more that I drank, the older that I got, my life started to become more and more unmanageable. And that looked like interfering with my job. At the time I was planning international events. I was going over to Europe a lot of the time and just drinking my face off. And so I started to hit a point where I wasn't sure if alcohol was contributing to my life, but I knew that I was really unhappy on the inside. And so that started to cause me to question my everyday day-to-day behaviors, which alcohol was a big part of that. And so when I turned 28 years old, I tried to go sober on my own. That worked for about three months and it was absolutely miserable. And so what happened was after three months of what we call white knuckling, which was I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't working any sort of program. I started drinking again and it came back full force and it was really bad so much so that I had to go to rehab to kind of get my life sorted out. So I went to rehab in Canada, came out after 90 days, decided to move my entire life from the U.S. to Canada and start over and start kind of just living on a more simple level where alcohol wasn't taking up my day-to-day life. And it was really hard in the beginning. It was a struggle. I didn't even know how to have sober fun. I didn't know how to meet sober people. And it got me really thinking over the years of how can I help other people who are early on in their journey start to make sense of living a sober life? Because once I started working a program and getting really connected to myself and other people, started to have sober fun, I started living the best life that I had ever lived. And I really wanted to help other people get to this point in their life where they started to feel comfortable in themselves comfortable in their day-to-day activities, comfortable setting goals, because sobriety is not just about putting alcohol down. It's about learning how to live a much different life, a life that is rewarding and sustainable and filled with experiences. And for a long time, I used to think sober life was going to be so boring. And that was something that kept me stuck drinking. So I started my sober compass after two years being sober. I went back to school, got my dual certification in life coaching and recovery coaching. 
and built my company from the ground up. I really knew that I had a passion for this industry. I knew that there weren't a lot of recovery coaches out there at the time, but I went for it. And here I am three years later, loving my day-to-day life. My Sober Compass is my full-time job now. And I get to work with amazing people just like Lucy. And I could not be more grateful to have made all of the changes that I have and to have met all the people that I have along the way. Because I know if I did not get sober at 28 years old, I was headed in a much different, darker direction. And that that looked like depression for me. That looked like having suicidal thoughts. It looked like being anxious every day and having panic attacks. You know, the kind where you are on the floor having a panic attack. That was something that was becoming normal for me. And I don't live like that anymore. So I'm really grateful that that life can change if we put the work into it. That's awesome. So how many years have you been sober? Over five years now. I'm coming up on six this summer, which I'm really excited about. So what was your rock bottom? Like, I don't have a choice. I have to do this moment. I can picture my rock bottom very clearly. So what happened was after my stint of sobriety on my own and going back out and relapsing, my drinking actually doubled. So I started drinking three to four bottles of wine a day just to function. And don't get me wrong, I was holding down a job. I was still showing up for work. You know, I still had my friends. But what people didn't see was what was happening to me when I was alone in my apartment. Like I would strategically go out and drink for a couple drinks and then I would come home and get loaded on my own. So what happened was I was having trouble keeping up this facade, keeping up like appearances. And there was one weekend in particular, I went out with a group of my friends. We went to downtown DC. There was this really fun sports bar. They had this huge Jenga game. And we started drinking at like 10.30 in the morning. And by I think three o'clock, I was blacked out. I blacked out the whole next till the next morning. Woke up face down on my living room floor. I was surrounded by bottles. I didn't know how I got home. I didn't know what I had said to my friends. I didn't know so many things. And I broke down in my apartment. And then at that very moment, I had a person knock on my door, walk in and say, oh my God, are you okay? And that was at that moment, I knew that I was not okay. And so my rock bottom looked like being extremely depressed not knowing who I was when I'd look in the mirror anymore, not knowing what I valued in my life. Like I started really romanticizing killing myself. And that was not true for me. I knew that I wanted to live, but I also felt like I was in so much pain that killing myself would have been kind of just a way to escape that pain. I can relate. So that was my rock bottom. And then what happened was, I went to a doctor the next day. I finally admitted how much I was drinking. And she looked at me and said, you know, you got to go to rehab. And that was not what I was expecting. I thought she would say, oh, well, we'll just give you a pill. You're going to be good to go. But the seriousness in her face, I will never forget how she looked at me. It was like very serious. And she said, I think you should look for a place that treats concurrent disorders because I think that you're dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety and you're just trying to cope. And so the dots started to connect mentally because I had never really connected my mental health to how much I was drinking. I'm curious, have you ever thought of like going back to that doctor and like talking to them and thanking them and telling them how much they changed your life? 
I actually did. I wrote her quite a long email, I think a year after I had graduated from my treatment program. And I was really in depth with how much that conversation helped me because I wanted to tell her in hopes that if anyone else was coming to her office and lying to her about how much they were drinking, I wanted her to, you know, just realize, first of all, how scary that is to admit to someone, but also secondly, how much she helped me because she did. And that reality check of you got to, you got to check in somewhere because you're not getting better right now. Literally, it felt like I was getting hit by a bus. But in a good way, right? Because I really wasn't able to sustain my life much longer at that level. It was painful. Did you have support from your family when you made the decision to go to rehab? I did have support from my family. They were very shocked because I had hidden a lot of my drinking. I don't know. There's like a term closet alcoholic where people, you know, they function on a very surface level, but their insides really aren't matching their outsides. And I became this master of deception when it came to that, because I put a lot of my value into work and social outings and what I looked like and how I dressed. But if you were able to like slice me in half and check out what was going on in my heart, what was going on in my brain, how anxious I was, it would have looked very different than what I was presenting. And so my family had to kind of catch up to this idea that wow, Ariel really hasn't been doing well for a long time. And I think that was difficult because, you know, it's hard to admit that your child is in a lot of pain and a lot of hurt. And immediately it was, why? Why is this happening? How can we fix? Looking back on this now, this is a journey. Like it's a process. It is not something that's overnight. So the idea was that I would go to treatment for 30 days, come out, be all good to go. Everything would be done. But the first week I was in treatment, I was called out by a few counselors and they said to me immediately, Ariel, you're going to need to stay a lot longer than 30 days. <laughs> so I did. I stayed 90. <laughs> I've heard that before where people go in and they think like, oh, like this isn't really for me. I'm just stopping by and I'll, I'll do the 30 days and then I'll be fine. Everything's fine. Unless someone tells you that is the dream, that we'll just be fine. We'll come out of it. We'll be healed. Um, but what I didn't realize was my addiction was very multidimensional. It was not just, oh, you know, that had this experience happen to me when I was younger. And so I drank through it. It was a series of events that I had continued to stuff and bottle and just hide away and not process. Even in elementary school, my friends would joke, Ariel, you don't have any feelings now, reflecting back on it, I was disassociated from a lot of how I felt. And alcohol was that connecting piece. You know, alcohol would make me cry. It would make me laugh. It would make me think that I was in this bout of euphoria. So there was a reason why I was picking up a drink, a lot of drinks. <laughs> there was a lot of reasons behind that. And I had no idea. Like the educational component in any sort of recovery program, treatment program, inpatient, outpatient is very eye-opening to actually see alcohol is just a symptom. It's usually there's a cause somewhere internally inside of us that's causing us to do these self-destructive, self-sabotaging behaviors. It's not something that we just choose to do when we wake up in the morning like, hey, I'm going to go choose to drink three bottles of wine today. It really wasn't a choice for me. It was a, a way that I was self-medicating. Like a survival mechanism. Yeah, I was surviving. 
But how do you know that in the moment when you are literally waking up and just trying to live your day-to-day life just like everyone has told you and you look around and you see other humans that are you know, seemingly happy, that have relationships, that have jobs, and they're just, they're content. They're doing their thing. So I really wanted to, I was searching to be content and alcohol made me feel content to a point. Usually like the first three to four or five drinks, I would feel great. And then boom, I'd be off to nowhere land after that. Um, Ariel, I have to tell you how much I appreciate you sharing your story because I've heard it so many times and I feel like every time I hear it, I feel like I'm hearing it for the first time and I feel very emotional about it. So I'm so happy that you are where you are at and that you were able to help people every day struggling with addiction. So funny enough, and the reason I want to share this story is because I find that it's very interesting how I seem to connect and meet people. Um, so Ariel and I actually went to high school together. And Ariel was a year younger than me, but we had never met before. It was actually just about a year ago. I had a call with Ariel, and I was at a point in my life where I was basically like, I want to try to stop drinking, and I want to see what it it will do for my mental health. And if I'm really going to try to do this, I want to make sure that I go full force and I have all the support that I need. So at this point, I was in a place where my anxiety was like a 15 out of 10 um, or a 20 out of 10. I was debilitated. I would wake up in the morning with raging anxiety, having a hard time getting out of bed, not really wanting to do anything, having a hard time working, not really feeling like I was able to accomplish anything throughout the day that wasn't like a basic task. But I knew that there was more to my life, and I knew that I had a greater purpose, and that there was something that I was meant to do and become, but it wasn't happening because I was hiding behind the alcohol and food and shopping. (laughs) So when I was married, I found myself in a place where I was drinking more frequently, I'd say, about a year into being married, and it became a daily thing. And I actually reached out to a friend of mine that had been sober for a year, and she was telling me about what it was like and why she decided to become sober. And I was, like, so anxious at the time and so kind of screwed up in my head with my anxiety and depression that I was like, well, it sounds like a good idea, but, you know, like, I don't know if that's ever going to (laughs) happen. And I just kind of, like, tabled it and like put it to the side and alcohol was a great gateway for me to eating. So I have dieted a lot and I found that when I drank, I was not nervous about eating. I don't know if you felt that way. It takes any nervous feeling away in the initial couple drinks. Yes. So yeah, I was drinking while I was married frequently. I found myself in a position where I started to drink during the day while I was at work. I would drink, like go out to lunch and have a couple of drinks, which is something I would never do. I know that my coworkers did it. I knew that it was technically accepted in the office, but there was a point where I started to get a little bit more tipsy than I should have. And I actually remember coming back to work after lunch and all of a sudden we were having some surprise meeting and I walk into the conference room and I just say something highly inappropriate. Like I caught myself and I was like, who the hell are you? Like, what are you doing right now? Like, you're completely out of control. 
But even at that point, I was like, well, I'm functioning. Like, I'm still doing my job. I'm still doing the bare minimum. So everything's okay. I also remember times where, like, I would go to the gas station. Like, I was super anxious one night. And I went to the gas station and got, like, a little mini four-pack of Cabernet, which was, like, my thing to do. And I sat in the car and I drank. And then I drove home. There were times where I went to events and I would drink because I was anxious and then I would drive home and I look back at those times and I'm like, you are so out of your mind to make those decisions, but also so lucky that you didn't hurt yourself or anybody else. You know, I always felt like I was one of those people that, you know, I only drank enough so that I could drive home and everything would be okay. But there's always that opportunity that that's not going to be the case. So fast forward, I separate from my now ex-husband, and I went through a really deep, dark depression. And I was very anxious. I was depressed. I could barely get out of bed. And my number one thing was always my weight in my life. So I was like, oh, I need to stop, you know, eating. And, you know, I was living with my parents and like eating ice cream and treats and there's chocolate all over the house. And so I started going to Overeaters Anonymous meetings And I was struggling with anxiety. And I'm like, you know what, Lucy, you're never going to deal with your anxiety if you don't deal with the drinking. Because the drinking is the gateway to being able to eat whatever the hell you want to eat. You know, like it's that puts me in such a comfortable spot where it's like all of a sudden I forget that I'm trying to be healthy and lose weight and and whatnot. So I stopped drinking, dealt with massive anxiety. Of course, the eating still kind of continued the the way that it was, sneaking food at night and stuff, kind of like what I did when I was a child. And then at one point, I actually saw a friend of ours, a mutual friend, post on Facebook about depression. And I reached out to her after I was about three months sober. And I said to her, like, I can't tell you, like, how much your posts meant to me. Like, she wasn't even referencing drinking. But I was like, you know, I stopped drinking like three months ago. And I'm feeling better. And this is happening. And that's happening. And she was telling me about Ariel. And I was, she's like, oh, you know, Ariel from high school. I was like, no, I don't know who the heck that is. So I kind of, like, looked her up on Facebook and, like, friended her. And she's like, yeah, she started this company, My Sober Company. It's like, this had to have been, like, right when you were starting your company. So I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, like, I don't have a problem, you know, like, it's like, I don't need that type of help, of course, you know. So fast forward a year and a half later, maybe, I find myself in a position where I went away on a business trip, and I was dealing with massive anxiety. And I had just been sick. And I was like, oh, just gonna drink like everybody else, like just gonna drink, drink, drink. And like, this was like an event for like top leaders, the booze was flowing. This was a great opportunity to just like drink it up, have fun. You know, you don't have to have any jitters because you can just, you know, basically numb the crap out of yourself. And that's exactly what I did. Like we had an event where we went to a ranch and I can't tell you how many drinks I had that night. For whatever reason, I never got drunk enough that I like couldn't walk or function, but I kept the drinks flowing. But that was the point where I was like, okay, you're at a top leaders trip and... You're doing pretty good, but like you're not happy and you're really not excelling. And it was finally this moment where I was like, if you're going to like continue to live your life and be happy and fulfilled, something's got to give. Like something needs to change. So at that point, I came back from the trip and I contacted somebody that I know locally that had type of life that I wanted, somebody that was successful, gave back to the community, just happened to be sober, happily married, has tons of friends, like looks happy all the time. And they just happened to be sober. 
And I was like, well, you know, like, I'm not an alcoholic. Like, you know, like, this is ridiculous. Like, am I crazy just coming up with this idea, you know? So I decided to go meet with this person. And he threw the idea of me going to, like, a meeting on Friday. I think it was, like, a Wednesday or a Thursday. And I was like, what the hell do I have to lose? Like, I'm suffering. I'm not happy. I was at the point by the time that you and I started talking that I was basically like, I'm going to be dead in five years. Like, there's not going to be... In my head, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be fulfilled. I'm going to be drinking and drugging or who knows what. And it's just not going to be worth it for me to continue on anymore. So uh, I started seeking help in that way. And then I was like, okay, I was like, I need more help than this. And finally, I was like, you know what? Like, let me contact this chick and see what she has to offer. So I remember reaching out to Ariel and we had our first meeting and it's interesting because I look back and, you know, I went back and listened to our first recording and like, I'm a completely different person. I'm curious how you see me now compared to how I was before. I agree. I think that you've grown so much this year, you know, in the beginning, I think there was a lot of confusion about how you wanted to get happy, how you wanted to start this work. It can feel in the beginning like we are standing at the bottom of a mountain looking up and it's quite overwhelming. And Lucy, the reason why you made all this change happen is because you put the effort in. You showed up for calls, you worked a program, you went to meetings, like you did the work and like, that's why I do the first initial call to see if a person is ready to actually make the change happen. And you absolutely were ready. I think that you were so tired of not feeling your best, right? Whether you want to say you felt like crap, you felt like, you know, what am I doing with my life? Who am I? Like all these kind of things that we ruminate on. And you were tired of feeling that way. And so I think sometimes our pain can be such a strong motivator to actually pull ourselves out of it. And that is exactly what I saw for you. You were done with being in pain. I felt dead on the inside. Like I legit remember sitting, staring outside the window at this lake across from my apartment. Like, what am I living for? Like, I have great opportunities in my life. I'm a very blessed person. And I just, I can't function. I can't be okay. I'm, I'm constantly trying to survive. And at that point, it was like, I'm willing to try anything. Like, let's do this. And, you know, having the education from you of what alcohol does to you made me realize, okay, maybe I should give this a chance. Yes. Yeah, so in the beginning, once we stop a behavior that we've been using for a really long time to cope and survive, our brain has to go into this rewiring mode. So that looks like post-acute withdrawal syndrome, which you can get regardless of if you're drinking two or three drinks a night to like five bottles of wine a night, like post-acute withdrawal usually happens. And what that can be is significant mood swings. You can feel even more depressed, but it's kind of just that time where your brain's regathering and regrouping and trying to figure out how to live sober now, right? Like we're carving different pathways and thought processes. And so usually in the beginning of a coaching program with someone, we dig, and we did this, Lucy, like we dig into the why, we dig into what your cycle looked like, we dig into how you use alcohol, is it to numb, is it to escape, is it to process things, and all of those light bulb moments, they add up together. 
so it's not like we're going to solve the entire thing in the beginning, but overall we build kind of like going up a staircase, like a little bit at a time to process it. Because the number one thing that I see with people is if we start to do too much in this arena, we get overwhelmed, then we shut down because it's way too much to process. And then drinking looks like even more appealing because it's that thing that can take us out of that overwhelm or it has in our pasts. So the first step is kind of like redefining and looking at what's been happening for me. Why have I been struggling? And then we move into designing your recovery program. What does that entail? And then ultimately putting that into action, because if we don't put it into action, like nothing happens. <laughs> so we can talk about it all day, but it's really about kind of moving through and flowing through the process. And I always recommend at the same time as a coach, what other opportunities are out there? So whether it's, you know, doing therapy or getting a sponsor or talking to your doctor about medications, there's a lot of different facets to building a recovery program. And each person is extremely different. We got really personal really fast about what was happening for you. And it's, it's really cool because I could see a lot of my story in terms of like depression and anxiety in you too. So I thought that was, that brought us even closer together very early on. Would you agree? Definitely. I have to say one of the things that I love about working with you is that you, and I don't know if you ever considered whether or not you were going to do this, but the fact that you record the sessions and you have the ability to go back and listen to the sessions. So is that something that you ever questioned like doing or were you flat out? Because I've never worked with anyone else that was like, oh, we're going to record your sessions and you can go back and watch them and... You know, I don't know if that's like a fear of me taking away that information and selling it or or what what it is, but I'm just kind of curious. I never got nervous about that because, you know, I can look through my photos from years ago and see exactly where I was at. I was screenshotting quotes long before I started My Sober Compass. Like I was searching and seeking. And I do believe that when we look back on things that we've learned, we can take a lot out of it. Maybe it's partially because I'm ADD and I don't remember everything right away. <laughs> but recording is like, wow, okay, yeah, that, oh my God, that happened too. Like my brain doesn't remember that part, you know? So I, yeah, I love recording it. And someone told me once, you know, maybe you should get a little nervous about that. But, you know, I give clients the ability to be able to reflect on how far they've been. And I'm just so proud of you that you took the time, you know, to, to watch where, how far you've come. Because when you did that, was it kind of eye-opening to you? I was like, holy, honestly, like, holy fucking shit. There were certain things that I was like, whoa. Like, even recently, like, when you and I first started working together, right before, obviously, when I was still drinking, I was drinking in order to go to sleep or I was, you know, taking a pill to go to sleep or something. But I was going upstairs to lay in bed at 6 or 7 p.m. because my anxiety was so bad that I did not want to be awake. I did not want to have to deal with it anymore. I had enough hours of being anxiety-ridden, frozen, numb, uncomfortable that I was like, please, just somebody shut it off. Like, just make it go away. So... I went from drinking to go to bed early to shut off to not drinking, laying in bed, anxiety ridden. Because I think I was about, I want to say like maybe a week, week to nine days sober by the time you and I started talking. Yeah, it was um, February 15th, 2020. 
pre-pandemic awareness and I was still suffering. I, in that beginning process of us talking, I was like, look, I, I lay in bed at 6 or 7 p.m., you know, and then I could, you know, maybe get up and take the dog out at some point, maybe take him out like the earliest I could to be able to go back to bed and then, you know, get up the next day and take him out. But I felt dead on the inside. Like I, I don't want to say I didn't want to live, but I didn't want to be awake very often. It was very difficult. Yeah, it's just really uncomfortable in our own skin or our brains. And yeah, I used to do the same thing. I'd try to go to bed early and then I couldn't sleep. So I'd wake up, go to my fridge, drink. It's a hard way to live, isn't it? It is. And I think that when I first started working with you, I think I had it in the back of my head that I was like, well, the good news is, Lucy, you're not really an alcoholic. So, you know, you can always go back to drinking and just numb the hell out of yourself and just continue on the way you were before. And that's kind of how... I was trying to get through in the beginning because there were moments where I didn't know how to handle how I was feeling. And it's funny because when I went back to listen to the recording, we were talking about, you know, certain things that are triggers and certain things that we lean on when it comes to emotions. And it was funny because I caught you when you were talking at one point and I said, you know, don't tell me you're going to make me like stop drinking coffee. <laughs> and I literally like I, I grabbed my Starbucks and I was literally like, I've heard my whole life that, you know, coffee, you know, caffeine is really bad for anxiety, but don't fucking tell me you're gonna take away my coffee because this is the only thing I have left. Like literally like this, I was like physically like, this is the only thing I have that I'm holding on to. And I'm looking at myself and I'm like, whoa, you really were in survival mode. Yes. You were hanging on by a thread. And it's not surprising to me, right? Like usually we have a secondary, a third area, a fourth dairy, that's not a word, but addiction, something to also help us cope. It's all tied together. You know, I never, ever tell clients, like when you work with me, you can never drink again, right? Because then I would have zero clients. This is definitely a decision that needs to come from the inside. And what I do is provide the support and the tools so that people can make that decision. I know when I first went to treatment and they were like, yep, yeah, you can never drink again. Like you're labeled alcoholic, whatever. It pissed me right off. Like I was angry. I was mad. I truly thought it was bullshit. I get where they were coming from. But at the same time, I know people who are 25 years sober and they literally take it one day at a time and they never show up and say, you know, I'm never going to drink again. They're very humbled in that regard. And I also believe that creating a safe environment where people can really, like you and I can have a deeper discussion about what's happening for you. Like you can show up and say, Ariel, I wanted to drink all day today. You know, what is this about? And having a real conversation rather than someone showing up and saying, you know, oh, I didn't drink this week when here they are drinking every single day because they don't want to disappoint me. Those are two very different directions that this could go. So my goal is to provide that space of let's just talk through it and let's see what's really happening for you so that we can tweak or try different things or whether it's, you know, underlying mental health issue, um, an experience that you've gone through or like a simple like coping, let's try new coping skills, whatever it is, I'm open to trying something new with every single person that I work with. Just like our addictions, no two addictions are the same, just like no two recovery programs are the same. 
Well, not only was I chugging my coffee every day, thinking that that was like helping me, you know, I was getting my Starbucks fix that I've been getting for the last X amount of years. But in one of the conversations we had early on, I was telling you about how I was going and like having fast food every night. It's like, oh, I can't drink. Well, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I feel like it, like to get by and to not drink and to cope. And I think one of the biggest blessings to my sobriety is the fact that I don't have these feelings of like, I need something to feel better. You know, it forced me to deal with the actual issues at hand, which is like feeling lonely, feeling like I'll never be good enough, you know, which is something that was brought on by my father because of my weight. I was like laughing hysterically on the inside when you were talking about like, no addictions are alike and there's all these different things. Cause I'm like, oh, let's talk about dating addictions and like swiping and stuff. That was one of my favorite things. So when I first started working with Ariel, one of my favorite moments was when she admitted that she had a online dating addiction because I had been going online trying to date and it was a complete nightmare. And I was like, oh, good. Like, I can be really honest with this person. Like, I can be transparent and tell them what I'm doing. And we we had that tough discussion about the fact that, like, swiping online is just like taking a drink, taking a pill, making a purchase online, going through the McDonald's drive through getting that Starbucks coffee. Like, that whole swiping thing can be so emotionally abusive and addictive. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, just to give you guys some context, those three months that I was sober, sober from alcohol, I was swiping all of DC in those three months, like all of DC. I remember this moment where I was sitting on my bed and Tinder actually told me there is no one else to swipe. And I thought, huh, you know, maybe, maybe this is not healthy. And so I started telling my friends and They were quite confused, like, wow, Ariel, you've got to take this to a whole new level. But you know what? It is the exact, like Lucy was saying, it is the exact same high. It's a rush. It's endorphins. And I was seeking external validation because I could not find that in myself. I was so uncomfortable just living in my skin that I thought I needed a man to help me with that. And you know what? I invited a lot of destructive relationships into my life from swiping. None of them were good. Like I had a guy who I went on a few dates with and then I found out after all those dates that he had a baby and he just forgot to tell me about that. And I said, oh, that's okay. You know, not a big deal. Meanwhile, it was a big deal and he was still in a relationship with his ex, right? (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God. But here's the thing, like you, you were the reason why I was able to work through my issues with the online dating and to realize that, especially when the pandemic started, that like, one, it probably was not a good idea. And two, it was another form of addiction. Like it was not a healthy habit at all. And here's the thing. I still don't see a lot of posts about addiction transference, about being addicted to dating apps, about being addicted to our phones. I think that we are right at the beginning stages of actually recognizing this as a problem. But right now people are more focused on drugs and alcohol and starting to be sex addiction too. Like I'm starting to hear more about that. But you know, these smaller addictions, smaller, if you want to label that, like, you know, swiping on your phone is not going to kill you. 
but it's still very detrimental and can really hurt people in terms of like functioning on a day-to-day -day level. So I think the more that we move forward in this space, the more that we continue all to talk about mental health. I've heard of treatment centers popping up for cell phone addiction now. I didn't even know, like six years ago, I didn't know that would be a thing. Interesting. Is it just in Canada or also in the U.S. or? No, actually in Europe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So behavioral addiction is starting to get, you know, kind of more of the spotlight. And I'm loving that because I know that there are a lot of people out there that they do dry January, dry February, dry October. And then at the end of the dry period, they're kind of feeling like, oh, well, I'm just going to go back to drinking, even though I felt better about it. But they're not really digging into the why. And that's cool. Like everyone is totally entitled to their own journey with it. But I think the more that we talk about, yeah, there's there's a lot of components to not drinking. Like there's a lot of cool things that you can insert in this in-between. Because I know for me, I got five or six hours of my day back when I got sober. That's a lot of time. Like how many hours did you get back a day? Probably like three hours, maybe. That's a lot of time. One of the big differences for me now compared to when we first started talking is that I stay downstairs until 9 p.m. now or 8.30 p.m. And then I go up and then I wake up at about 6 o'clock and I have a whole routine throughout my day. But, you know, looking back, I'm like, holy crap, like I used to fall asleep listening to the television so I wouldn't feel as anxious, even though God knows it probably gave me nightmares, you know, and then finally made the step to, you know, removing my television from my bedroom. So... I want to like kind of scale back here. So when you and I were working together, I was sober from February 15th through around mid-September. So around August of 2020, I was still suffering from anxiety. Like it was funny. I, was, I remember having a conversation with my therapist and I was like, yeah, you know, I just thought that I was going to stop drinking and that my, you know, anxiety was going to become more manageable. And she she laughed. You know, we were talking on the phone. She's like, yeah, that's not exactly how this works. Like, you know, like you were covering up your anxiety and now you're like taking that sedative away. Like you're not going to feel necessarily less anxious to start out with, you know, especially not in the beginning. But at that point, I remember I decided to go and talk to a meditation coach, Matt Cardone. And I started meditating and then I started working through that to help me with my anxiety. And then I started to see other things that helped me. But it was about seven months into my sobriety that I found myself in a space where you and I actually had a conversation. I remember where I was saying like, you know, yeah, I'm really comfortable with where I'm at. I don't feel like I really have a problem with alcohol. I'm comfortable not drinking it. You know, you get kind of in this comfortable spot. And I remember you telling me, you know, from your professional opinion, I wasn't an alcoholic. So we had this conversation and I think I, I didn't want to admit that I had a problem. And I think that the part of healing and working through your issues is admitting no matter what label or whatever you want to put on it, that you have an actual problem. And I found myself in a position where I was visiting somebody <laughs> here comes the story, visiting somebody um, that I was dating online. And this person enjoyed drinking alcohol, which is fabulous. But I found myself in a position where I felt like 
I was questioned for the fact that I wasn't drinking. It was my first opportunity where it's like, why aren't you drinking? Like, what? You know, and I didn't really want to say anything about it. I didn't want to make a big stink about it. You know, here you are, like, on a first date. You know, be like, well, I I struggle from mental health issues. Let's talk about that now. Like, what else do you want to know? So... The first time I was uh, out to eat with this person for dinner, he asked me if I wanted to have a sip of his beer. And I was like, no, I'm okay. And he's like, you sure? It's really good. So I was like, you know what? One sip. Like, I got this. I'm cool. Whatever. So I had my one sip. And I was like, yeah, whatever. No big deal. And then I found myself the next night in a situation where I was unhappy being around this person. And I was unhappy with the way that they were treating me. And I had this, like, fuck it, I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to have one drink, you know? Like, that's just, that's fine, you know? And I look back on it, and I was like, yeah, you know, one drink, no big deal, whatever. So I had my one drink, and I didn't feel the need to have another. Everything was cool, whatever. But I found myself in a position less than a week later. It was my birthday, and it was my 35th birthday, and there was, you know, I wanted everyone to feel comfortable in the situation. So, yeah, have alcohol. It's fine. You know, maybe I'll drink. Maybe I won't. I got smashed. Like, I wasn't, like, drunk drunk, but, like, I had enough to drink that maybe I shouldn't have driven to my mom's house. I'm not 100% sure. But I was back in, like, sedative mode. Mm-hmm. And it continued on from there where it's like, okay, I'm only doing it like every weekend. Like, it's okay. I've got this under control. But the problem is that it had nothing to do with the fact that I was drinking alcohol. It's what it was doing to my mental health. All of a sudden, I was more anxious again. All of a sudden, I felt like I couldn't do certain things. And I wasn't motivated to do anything. And I just kind of reevaluated things. And I think it was maybe a month and a half after that, that, you know, you and I were no longer working together. We were like taking a break and I had a night. It was just like a, a regular night of the week. And I just something happened and I went and I drank and I had like, I don't know, a couple of those tiny bottles or whatever. And I just knew I wasn't okay. Like, I just knew, like, you're falling down the rabbit hole again, Lucy. And I remember reaching out to you, like, immediately. I, like, grabbed my phone and I was like, yeah, that whole, like, sobriety thing, like, I think we need to talk about it again. Like, I think this may be the right decision. That's a huge moment. And I truly believe that we have to go through these things. Like, I I call it more field research because you were questioning for a while there. Should I go back to drinking? Should I go back to drinking? And I'd love to find that recording because, you know, we hang on to certain words and I was really torn about telling you, I don't think that you're an alcoholic, but I think immediately after that, I said, I think that you do have a drinking problem because of how alcohol makes you feel right. But our brains will latch on to, oh my gosh, well, you know, Ariel just said, I, she doesn't think that I'm an alcoholic. Well, if you look at, you know, how the big book defines an alcoholic, how a doctor would define an alcoholic, this is someone like me, who was relying on alcohol all day, every day, just to be on this planet, like to, to kind of be a person. And your drinking was a bit different from mine, right? It was, it wasn't maybe to that level, but that's not to say that you could never get there. Like there is a definite progression into drinking. Some people, they don't even, they just have that first drink and boom, they're alcoholic. Some people, they dabble in social drinking for years and years. And then one day it's like, you know, I'm dependent So there's a lot of different kind of ways that it can go. So if we want to call it a relapse, if we want to call it you took a break from your program, whatever it is, I think that there were so many lessons 
that you learned during that time period that you wouldn't be here today if you hadn't gone through that? You'd probably still be questioning, could I go back to it? Is that right? I would be, yeah, I would probably be fumbling around. I felt a little bad that I think that you were nervous that you said, like, I don't think you're an alcoholic. But there was a piece of me at seven months that when you're still in that, like, curiosity phase of, like, trying to figure out what decision you're going to make or if you really committed, if you don't feel like you have a serious, serious problem and you don't feel like it's life or death, I was at the point where I was like, I didn't want to accept that not drinking was what I needed to do. I didn't want to feel like I had another label on my back. I didn't want to feel like I had another problem. And I realized that it has nothing to do with that. Like, I, I'm somebody that struggles with anxiety and depression my whole life. And then several years ago, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And why would I do something to myself that's going to make me not want to be alive all the time? That's going to make me want to eat more. That's going to make me want to destruct myself. Like, why, if I truly love myself, why would I not get help? Why would I not try to be okay? And I had a situation, so I went to a... Um, a photo shoot the other day and it was interesting. It was for a, a gym that was opening up that my friend was opening and uh, it was a promo video. And at the end they had a cake and they had champagne. And it's like one of those moments where like, yeah, let's pop the bubbly. Like who wants a mimosa and have a slice of cake. And I gotta be honest, the cake looked really good. Apparently it was really good. The champagne looked really good. And I don't necessarily believe in being an all or nothing, nothing person. I am in the middle of 75 hard. I think I'm on day 63. So I'm not Part of that program is not having any alcohol and not having any sweets, which has been a gift to me because I don't have the cravings for the sweets nearly like I used to. Like I've been able to learn not to mentally lean on that because I tell myself like, no, I'm doing this program and I just stick to it. But I had this quick moment of like, are you really not going to join in? Are you really going to reject their offering? You know, like their their beautiful gesture of, you know, champagne and cake with like cannoli filling and fruit compote and like all this like amazingness. I had this moment of like, you don't have to indulge in something to make people like you or to be more comfortable in a situation or to fit in. The people that are around you, if they love you, respect you, appreciate you. They're not going to care whether you're indulging in something or not, unless maybe they have their own issues and they're like, well, if I'm going to have a piece of cake, you have to have a piece of cake so I can feel better about it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, so I didn't have any cake or I didn't have anything to drink. Like, I, I don't even think they offered me the champagne, and I don't mean like that in like a bad way, but like nobody kind of forced it upon me, but I was prepared to say I, I don't drink anymore. I love that you're talking about this very real social situation because this comes up for everyone, right? When we show up, kind of the societal expectation is it's rude to not indulge in something that someone's offering you, whether it's alcohol or cake or whatever. I know if I were in that situation and I was pre-rehab and I was trying, you know, to not drink as much. That whole party would have revolved around should I or shouldn't I? I used to count other people's drinks and be like, oh, well, she had three. So, you know, that means I can have three and that's acceptable. And I'd keep tabs on what people were doing. And then someone would get drunk and I'd be like, oh, well, then it's okay to get drunk. Like 
and I'll just say I had a drinking problem. So I had, it was very different than what I have a close friend of mine. She was never a drinker. She'd have like a couple sips and leave something on the table and walk away and not even give it two thoughts. So I love Lucy that you're talking about this because I think this is a reality for many, many people where we struggle with, you know, should I or shouldn't I? What are the real consequences? Oh, this is just, you know, one drink or two drinks. And it's not going to hurt me. But the reality is if you really look at the facts of how much is this playing with your brain? How, what happens to you after for the next 24 hours? Like, do you hit anxiety? Do you get panic attacks? You know, you don't have to tell yourself, oh my God, I have a problem, but you can ask yourself the simple question of how is this actually working for me? Is this making me feel like my best self? That's a really good starting point. Now, I know that neither of us are doctors, but we both know that when, and maybe you can better explain this than I can, but, you know, I take medication for my anxiety and I knew very well that drinking was counteracting my medication. So personally, I think that, again, every person's program is so very different, right? So once we get sober, I recommend it's always good to go back to a doctor and just have a conversation and kind of reset because alcohol or drugs or whatever you've been using can really mask a lot of things. So when I went to my doctor after, I think it was four months of sobriety, I really was seeking a diagnosis, right? Like I really wanted that because I had never been given one. And so, you know, one of the things I was diagnosed with was generalized anxiety disorder. And so I started going down and trying out different depression medications that would help with my anxiety as well. And yes, I had depression. And after about a year of trial and error with that, I found I would prefer to live with a bit of uncomfortability personally than the medication I was prescribed was making me not feel anything at all. Like I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel sad. I was kind of just in the middle. And again, this is very individualized. Like I know people who have such great success with medication, like amazing results. I just wasn't, it didn't work for me. So I think that the more open and vulnerable and honest that we are with professionals, the better we do. Because I know people who have gone on anxiety medications like benzodiazepines, and then they've become addicted to that, right? So we really need to get real with, okay, how am I counting my pills? Am I overusing? Um, just because it's prescribed by a doctor doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to react with one person as it is with another. And that's something that I've kind of come to realize just with working with a lot of different people that it's very different for each one of us. Oh yeah, definitely. It's, and I hate, you know, it almost like, I think confuses people even more because then it's like, oh, well, so I'm supposed to figure this out on my own. Like talk to a counselor, talk to your coach, talk to your friends who are going through something similar, you know, gather the facts and really look at how am I feeling? If you are waking up sober and you're working a program and you are anxious and hiding and not leaving your house, like take a look at that. There's a lot of things to consider when we get into recovery, just like there are when we're in addiction. Like there's a lot of cool healing approaches and it's kind of like putting your own puzzle together. Definitely. It's, it's been interesting, you know, because there's been points like now I haven't had anything sweet to eat in like 63 days. I haven't had anything drink, and I was sober before I started the 75 Hard program, but I also stopped drinking coffee right before I started 75 Hard. 
because I really wanted to see, like, I'm not like no caffeine. I still have caffeine. I have pre-workouts once or twice a day, but I was having a pre-workout and then I was having my nitro cold brew and it's like I was bouncing off the walls. So at some point I had, I had to say to myself, you know, I wonder what would happen if I gave up coffee on top of those other things to see if it would make a difference. And it's hard because I love my coffee. I'm not going to lie. I love that taste. I love that feeling of going and getting my coffee. I love holding it in my hand. I love how it, you know, like all of that. But I can honestly say to myself that less is more, you know, and I think that that goes to anything in your life, you know, whether it's spending or, you know, eating, drinking, whatever. But I definitely see a difference in how my anxiety is functioning and just how I feel in general. I mean, I think this is so great to talk about because I was in treatment with a guy who he gave up everything in there. Like he gave up alcohol, drugs, smoking, coffee, sweets, talking to women, like all of his vices. And the counselors were like, whoa, buddy, like calm it down because, you know, we want to kind of unfold this in a very strategic manner. Like we don't recommend that you just stop cold turkey on everything. And he truly believed that he could just do that, right? He truly believed that this was the right path. And what happened was a day after he left treatment, he relapsed and he relapsed hard on everything, right? And it's not to say that this man was a weak individual. This was part of his personal journey, but I see kind of recovery as like peeling the layers off over time because just like you were holding on, you were grasping that coffee our first few sessions. Like, don't you dare tell me that I can't have this. And so when you were ready, Lucy, you let that go. And it's a beautiful thing to watch because you actually came to me and you're like, I had this realization. I'm feeling really good about this. I know that it's time. Like, I'm ready. And you were. And there's power in that. But if someone's standing there saying, like, you can't do this, you can't do that, it never really tends to work. Screw you, I'll show you. Yeah, that's where we get the case of the fuck it. Like, fuck it, I'm going to go do it because you told me not to. (laughs) Something that I really want to speak about before we go, Lucy, is this idea of, oh my gosh, do I have a problem with alcohol? This can really freak people out. You know, I'll get messages here and there from certain individuals, like I'm not feeling good. Then they'll disappear off the face of the planet because I think that the fear is that I'll be like, hey, you've got a problem. You've got to do something about this. So I want to just give people some things to think about in terms of maybe this isn't working for you anymore. Maybe this is kind of a starting point for you to make some change happen. And one of those things is if you're creating rules around your drinking, like I can only drink on Saturday or Sunday, or I can only drink three beer at a time, or I can only drink wine from now on, or I can only drink when I'm around this person or when I'm around other people, what's happening is alcohol is starting to control your life perhaps, and you're trying to fight back with it. And I'm not saying that you got to come to me and say, I'm never going to drink again. But why not start some of this work so that you can start to feel better and introduce like different healing strategies into your life so that you can be better prepared to make a decision? That is what I find really keeps people stuck. I even considered changing the name of my company from my sober compass to my life compass. The word sober can scare people away. I really do want to end on this note by saying 
you don't have to be a full-blown alcoholic to get help. You don't have to be experiencing blackouts or brownouts or making really bad decisions with your finances to get help. You can start at any point in your journey. You can start when you're 18 years old if you want or you know, you've been drinking hard for the last four days. Like any time is a good time to start to look at the pattern. And at the end of the day, you know, like we've talked about, it doesn't have to be a forever thing. You know, it can literally be today. I'm not going to drink. For me, it's sometimes it's like, I literally say to myself, like, I'm not drinking today because of my mental health. Yep. Like, I don't want to screw with my head. You know, can you talk just a little bit about the program that you offer? Absolutely. So I offer two different types of programs. One is my one-on-one coaching, kind of like this format. I meet with clients over Zoom. It's very private. It's confidential. And we week to week to week build a recovery program that makes sense for you. So there's a lot of reflecting. There's a lot of activities. There's homework. At the end of the day, I want clients to really understand why they've been doing certain things and how they can overcome it and what opportunities are out there. So You know, I lived in isolation for so long that I understand like it can be really scary to reach out and make that first step. So I offer a one-on-one coaching program. The other thing I offer is a break free and recover group coaching program, which is three months of group work. It's an online course. It's a workbook and it's very intensive in terms of heavy on the activity portion of let's map out my cycle. Let's identify my triggers. Let's figure out how I can walk into a room in a social setting and make better decisions for myself. So those are the two programs that I offer. I always offer a free consultation call at the beginning so that we can get to know each other and figure out what the right fit is for you. Because I believe that everyone, like I said, everyone recovers differently. I've had clients do both of the programs actually, and there's value in group work, there's value in individual work. And Lucy, maybe you can speak to this because you've been in both of these programs. Yeah, definitely. I am very much a one-on-one person. <laughs> I'm like that person that's like, give me the whole enchilada. I want, I need all the help I can get. But I'm not very good with follow-through on my own independently. I haven't been through the program online, even though I know it's amazing and I really need to go through and look at it just to be more knowledgeable. But what I will say is that I love the benefit of being able to jump on and listen to people speak about their recovery. And when you have guest people like last night, and I was like, oh, wow, like, this is really cool to see what somebody else has done with their life and how not drinking has completely changed their life. And I can see some similarities in in life choices. And it gives you a sense of hope and a sense of community. There is strength in numbers. I could recognize it in periods of my early program where I was completely isolating myself. You know, it was coming closer to me was that bottle. When I'd stop going to meetings, I'd stop talking to sober people. And luckily I'd recognize that early on and I learned a lot from that. So if you are early on in recovery and you're like, wow, this is not fun, know that there are more options out there. And if, you know, whether it's me or another recovery coach or someone that you just really identify with online, Find that person and reach out to them. That is a great first step. Always ask for help. Always, because we can get so caught up in our own heads that then we fail to take action, and it is not a fun place to be. No, and I so I do want to make it clear, because I don't know if I did make it clear. So I started drinking again. So I stopped drinking February 15th of 2020, 
And then I went seven months to about September 15th of 2020. And then I came back and I haven't had a drink since November 2nd. So I think I'm, I think I'm over 90 days. Amazing. So that's about nine months over the past year, right? Yeah. I mean, through the pandemic, that's pretty remarkable. It's very remarkable. It's a huge shift, Lucy. And like giving up alcohol, I think opened up so many doors for you. Like I said at the beginning, you made the work happen. You showed up, you persevered, you were resilient, you were honest. You can't put a price on that. What's interesting because I have a hard time believing sometimes or even giving myself credit to consider that other people don't show up and to look at the fact that like, oh no, you showing up every day, like that is huge, you know, and giving myself that credit and saying that I do choose to not drink and... It has been the most loving gift that I could give myself was to say that I'm I'm going to do everything I can and to stop numbing myself, whether it's, you know, with food, whether it's with alcohol, whether it's with shopping <laughs> or dating, you know, like right now I'm like I'm very focused on myself and mm-hmm. I won't put up with anything. And becoming sober taught me and gave me the time to learn how to love myself and accept myself, which is incredible. It's making me emotional hear you say that because this is your truth. No one's spoon feeding this to you. Like this is what is really happening for you. And this is so beautiful. I'm so grateful, Lucy, that, you know, the universe brought us together, that you made the decision to work on yourself that you're honest on this podcast about like hiring me and saying, you know, I don't know if this is a forever thing that is going to help a lot of people. Doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. You can try it. Doesn't work for you. Go back to drink. It's, it's always there. Trust me. I see it every day. I go to the grocery store. It's always there. You can always go back. You can always go back. So why not try a different way of living and give your heart, your head, and just your soul a chance to try something different. That's a good way to end. So where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at My Sober Compass or on Facebook. I have a really killer Facebook group called My Sober Compass Inner Circle. Or just go to my website, mysobercompass.com. Send me a message if you want to chat, if you have questions. I'm always here to answer anything that might be going through your head. Because I know in the beginning stages of questioning, our relationship with alcohol can be quite confusing. So I'm here to help however I can. Thank you for helping. This is a big step for me, but thank you for helping me change my life because my gut instinct is to say, thank you for changing my life, but I know that you want me to take ownership and doing the work. So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome, Lucy. And thank you for stepping up to the challenge because you sure (laughs) did. And I'm so proud of you for doing this podcast. It's amazing. Before you go, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive new episodes when they are released. If you are enjoying this podcast so far, please take a moment to leave us a review. This is one of the major ways Apple ranks their podcasts, and it really only takes just a few seconds. Thank you for joining me, Lucy Pinto, in this episode of the Sassy Warrior Podcast, Stories of Everyday Resilience. See you next time.